Hey, podcast listeners. Um, this podcast is with Dan. He is an aviation expert. He's been his whole life in the uh, spent in aviation from engineering to now he has his own business for uh, uh, teaching. Uh, he, if you're interested in aviation and you want to learn about uh, the changes that's happened uh, in the industry since the, the 40s and the 50s, this, this is your guy. If you want to learn about um, the opportunities that there are to start businesses or even learn how to fly a helicopter, this is going to be your podcast. I uh, hope you, listen, uh, you enjoy it and let me know uh, what you think of it. You're listening to the Alex Wolf Audio Odyssey. Thank you for coming, Dan. Pleasure to be. Um, well, you're an interesting guy. I took a couple hours, a couple days going through your LinkedIn page. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can give a little context to whoever's watching uh, how you got started in the aviation. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a long story in and of itself. Uh, I got into uh, the aviation industry through helicopters in 1976. Uh, with uh, Dominion Pegasus helicopters, which had a, a base in Sudbury, Ontario, and they were doing a lot of work at that time with uh, Inco, because Inco was looking at uh, uh, building uh, seven more power dams on the on the Spanish River. So they were using the helicopters to go up and down the Spanish River, doing geology surveys, archaeology surveys, surveying all kinds of different things. So. My father worked at the Inco Engineering Department, so they were landing and taking off over there. He got to know the guys very well at the base, and I was like 22 or 23 years old and had been working as a railroader, as a brakeman for a while, and underground for a while, and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So uh, my dad said, you want to go for a helicopter ride? So I said, sure. So one weekend we go over to the base, walked up, I can still have a very vivid recollection of walking up to this jet ranger and looking at it. It was the first helicopter I've ever seen live in a person. I just got into my blood, got hooked and started hanging out and they finally got tired of me being around and gave me a job sweeping a hangar and eventually got an apprenticeship, did my five years, got uh, my aircraft maintenance engineer's license and then uh, worked uh, with uh, Dominion Pegasus, Lac-Saint-Jean, Okanagan helicopters until we started up Lakeland helicopters and mid the early 80s and uh and i was the chief engineer there while we went through a very rapid growth period and uh, which was uh we went from two helicopters to 57 inside of four and a half years wow i mean what was the need for it well i mean at that time when we when we started up lakeland helicopters um interest rates were like 22 percent uh it was a very tough time. So any of the pre-existing companies that were dealing with these rapid rise in, in interest rates were having a hard time making ends meet, so they were going bankrupt, which was bad, but it also provided an opportunity for companies that weren't encumbered, that were in growth mode, to acquire equipment very, very inexpensively. We were getting jet rangers, we were buying them for $125,000 that uh, previously would have been $250,000. Yeah. So even though the interest rates were high because we weren't carrying any debt, we were rapidly expanding. And there was a number of companies that were in the process who had the work but 
couldn't could no longer perform the work because their their finances were out of whack. They were going out of business. We were on the rise, and so we picked up the uh, the business. So uh, eventually, uh, out of the out of Sudbury, I moved out to uh, Calgary to look after the Western operations out there, and because Sudbury was the head office at the time. And uh, so I looked after all of Western Canada and the Arctic out of Calgary, and then uh, eventually, I think it was maybe. Seven, maybe eight. Uh, the whole at that time we uh, accumulated a couple other companies. There was Ranger, North uh, Star, uh, Maple Leaf, uh, the downtown Toronto Heliport, uh, Ranger helicopters had all been put together into this one uh, group that uh, was called Helico, and it was all sold to uh, Craig Dobbin, who uh, from Newfoundland, who was at that time acquiring companies and creating what would eventually become. Uh, largest helicopter kind of operator in the world, which was uh, Canadian helicopters. I see. And when did you? Well, before I forget, uh, you. So you see a big opportunity when there's uh, chaos in the, the marketplace. Absolutely. Right? I mean, in any adversity, in any situation where there's there's uh, a problem or a downturn, there's also opportunity. There's always opportunity. It's a question of whether you can identify it. And position yourself to take advantage of it, uh, and, and use it to your your economic and uh, and uh, business advantage. And do you prepare for that kind of stuff? Do you think it's, uh, companies should be? Well, I mean, that's the best way, the best time to grow, right? If you're prepared, you're your cash, you have a lot of cash because interest will always go up in those times. Uh, well, I, I think yeah, you you can prepare to a certain extent, but you have to be able to be flexible in, in, in your response to, to stimulus. Uh, you know, an opportunity comes along, it may be one that, that you've been pursuing, it may be one that you have had an idea that it's going to be there, but it may be something right out of the left field. So if you've structured your organization in such a way that you can rapidly take advantage of an opportunity, whether it's planned or otherwise, you're going to have uh, a greater uh, chance of, of capitalizing on these unexpected opportunities when they come along. That's right, yeah. I completely agree. Uh, so when did you start your own business? Well, uh, after I left, uh, I, I left the, the, the uh, Helico Group in uh, 89, I started up an outfit called Phoenix Aeromotive, which uh, and I came back from Calgary to Sudbury. I started up, uh, which is a fixed base operation. We were going to do uh, maintenance, overhaul, uh, overhaul, buy and sell uh, aircraft, uh, um, buy damaged aircraft and re refurbish them and sell them and that kind of thing. Um, so we did that for a couple of three years and then I came to the realization that uh, um, you're doing all you're putting in seven days a week, 18 hour days, and everybody's getting paid except you. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't making a go of it. So I said, no, nah, I've got to do something different. So that's when I, I started thinking around and, and uh, we we closed down uh, Phoenix and I looked around and came up with the idea of uh, Trent Tech Canada, which was a, a consulting company. It originally started out as a product representation and consulting. So uh, we used to, uh, I had the Canadian distribution rights for Scancopter, which was a Norwegian company that was owned by Helicopter Services that marketed their 
different uh, pieces of equipment that they developed for the helicopter industry. They had their own line of water bucketing buckets and different uh, uh, modifications for the Bell 214 uh, aircraft that they had operated. So I was doing their, their representing their products over here. I also, um, there was an outfit called Infometrics, which uh, had developed a small, very small uh, gimbal stabilized infrared camera that uh, um, we're looking for Canadian representation. And I, I took that on and they were subsequently sold to FLIR. So he eventually was the uh, the representative for FLIR Systems Airborne here in Canada for a while. And uh, so I, I did those things. And then um, uh, I uh, I started looking around. I said, well, you know, this, this uh, consulting stuff seems to be, you know, more the way to go. So I started focusing more on consulting things. I started doing... Uh, product or not product, but uh, contract management and project management for different uh, helicopter companies, and uh, that started taking off. So I did uh, stuff for uh, for C. Well, when CTV was starting up with the very first uh, news helicopter, mm -hmm. there was a, an operator, uh, Helicopter Transport Services, uh, who uh, had the contract. So I got involved with regards to specking the aircraft, the uh, uh, modifying the aircraft and coordinating between the helicopter provider, the end user, which was CTV, and the uh, company that was doing all the modifications, which was Kitchener Aero, which was in, uh, building all of the, uh, the equipment that would uh, go into the aircraft so that they could do uh, airborne news uh, gathering stuff. Uh, so that started, uh, you know, I spent a lot more time on, on those kinds of projects um, in, uh, I guess it would be about 90, 97, 98. I started looking at uh, the field of aircraft appraisals. There, there was uh, not much out there. So I started looking around. I found the Northern National Aircraft Appraisal Association in the States. I joined with them and became a member and uh, took their training courses and, uh, and in 2005 I got certified as a, uh, as a uh, senior certified aircraft appraiser. So I've been doing that uh, ever since and that's become a, a much larger portion of what I've been doing uh, in the subsequent years. Um, the National Aircraft Appraisal Association has gone by the wayside and uh, it's now replaced with a, a new organization called the Professional Aircraft Appraisers Organization, which I'm now a senior member of that. And what do you think has gone? So basically right now you're mostly doing appraisals? Is that what you're yeah, appraisals and consulting. Um, I have a few, as far as Trintac is concerned, I have a few projects that I'm working on that are that are of my own uh, making, mm -hmm. uh, such as uh, Aircraft uh, Air Crew Training Canada Limited, which was a simulation-based uh, uh, flight training uh, organization that we've been working on for a number of years, and uh, we're hoping to get launched uh, in the near future. Okay, and that's just a training for people that wanted to get into... Field or? Well, it, it's training, it's, it's flight training for helicopters, um, but it's uh, focused on not using actual helicopters, it's focused on using uh, high-level um, 
flight simulators that uh, mimic the uh, the actions of the helicopter. So right now, if you if you're doing if you want to get a pilot's license, you have to go to a, an operator or a training organization that uh, has training helicopters. You do the ground school. You do 100 hours in the aircraft with an instructor, um, and you get your commercial license. Um, what what you do when you come out of that, you basically just have a license to learn. You don't have any real experience that you can bring to the marketplace. What we're looking at developing is a, a different model whereby, uh, in conjunction with doing some flight training in the aircraft, you also do uh, simulation training in a simulator, doing stuff that you wouldn't otherwise be able to be exposed to when you're using an actual helicopter. Um, for example, when they do training in the actual helicopter, part of the process is to teach auto rotations, how you come down after the engine quits so you can do an auto rotative landing and safely land the aircraft. You can teach that in the actual aircraft, but most uh, training organizations won't do what we call full-on autos where they come right down and land on the on the ground. They'll, they'll always just roll the throttle back, enter into the auto rotation. We get to a certain point, you do what's called power recovery. So they put the power back on and then you open fly away. Because of the fact the last part of the thing, of the auto rotation is the one that's most likely to cause damage or or have a problem uh, for the uh, for the students. So that part of it for safety reasons doesn't really get done that often. Mm. If you're in a simulator, full motion simulator on the other hand, you can you can do your auto rotations right to the ground, and it, it, believe me, it is like doing it right to the ground. It, it, it really gets your attention. So you can uh, do a number of things. Uh, for example, in the real world, the engine always doesn't quit when in the most opportune, when you're at the right altitude, the right airspeed, so that you can do an optimum auto rotation. It'll do, usually what happens is it'll quit at the worst possible moment. And in a simulator, that's what you can recreate. You can actually do those those emergency procedures in situations that the guy would never be exposed to unless it actually happened when he was on the job. So the level of, of experience that you're gaining by using full motion simulation to be able to, to teach the uh, individuals those things is invaluable. And... What we're uh, looking at is is a blended program. So where now you would be doing 100 hours in a helicopter and coming away with this level of experience, we're saying, okay, well, uh, Transport Canada, how about we can we will we'll up the uh, the uh, the hours to 120 hours, but we'll make 40 hours of it in simulators. But the 40 hours in the simulators will be such that it's all emergency procedures and or real life experience stuff. So, for example, aside from doing, you know, where you have a tail rotor failure or uh, an engine failure or something to that order, we can also do simulations where you're actually out uh, fighting fires. So now you have a guy who's got 120 hours, who's got five hours in the simulator fighting fires, doing water bucketing interacting with the forward air traffic controllers, the bird dogs, having to keep in mind that he's got crews on the ground that he can't get near. He's got other helicopter traffic that's servicing fires. You've got water bombers that are coming in. 
it's a very chaotic environment and we can create all of that and give that individual the experience of actually being on a fire that he otherwise would never have. So that would make him a much better candidate for some company that wants to hire a low time guy, give you a much better idea of how the guy reacts in pressure situations, how he deals with things. So the advantages to doing a blended uh, course or doing a, a simulation training in general is the fact that you can, instead of trying to simulate something in the helicopter that you can't really do because you don't want to bend the helicopter or hurt anybody, we can go out and crash the simulator and, and a thousand times and nobody gets hurt. But the, the level of experience that the individual is getting is, is immeasurable. So normally what they would do uh, in the 100-hour one, mm -hmm. uh, let's use the firefighters, uh, the helicopter with firefighters, um, they would just tag along and try to gain... Well, no, what, happens, what happens is this, is uh, if you're just training, yeah. they, they'll talk to you about what happens on a fire, but you'll never actually have any exposure to it, okay? Um, so what happens is you got a 100-hour license, that's your, that's your commercial ticket, so you're now legal to fly helicopters commercially. If you can get a job with an operator, which is difficult because they want experience, but let's say you get a job with an operator, what they're going to have you doing is you know, ferrying the aircraft from point A to point B, they're going to have you doing local jobs where you're just taking somebody photographic uh, mission or something like that until you get up to a certain level of experience, a uh, number of hours, and um, those hours would then allow them, your, their insurance companies to say, okay, well, we can, we can put them out there. What we're saying is, is okay, say the magic number is 300 hours before you can actually uh, get on the insurance or be a, what's considered a, 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 a full-fledged uh, commercial pilot that can actually out and do stuff. Um, what we're saying is, is that we can turn out a pilot at 120 hours that's got more exposure to the actual work environment and have experience than a 300-hour pilot who's just been flying people around in circuits doing uh, uh, barnstorming rides. Because right now, the standard is, is it's a magic number. Okay, if you've got 300 hours of flight time, you meet the requirements. It may be going, doing nothing but flying in circles around the CNE. You got 300 hours, you're, you're good to go. Now you go out and, and you have to learn on your own on the fire mm -hmm. or on whatever mission, moving drills or doing uh, airborne surveys or whatever. All that you do now is now you meet the, the minimum requirements for the insurance and for the company's uh, operational uh, requirements, but you still have to learn all of that, uh, get exposure to that, uh, that uh, experience. Uh, on the job. What we're saying is we think that utilizing uh, flight simulation is a much better way to get individuals a level of experience and competency that would enable them to go out and even though they may only have 120 hours, they will do a better job than that 300-hour pilot will on the first time that they go onto a fire or onto a, onto a drill move or whatever. So essentially you're shortening the learning curve for the pilots, and you're saying uh, a buttload of money to the guys hiring them because 
They're well, we're making, we're making the guy more valuable to the end user, which is the company that's going to hire the guy. So he's going to be much more valuable. He's going to be a much more attractive guy to hire because you're not starting from square one. This guy actually, when you you say, well, you know, forward bird, oh, yeah, well, I, we did this and this is how we handle it. Okay, so the guy's got an understanding. He's got some exposure. So he's not starting from zero. He's starting from a from a, a peg above. So that makes it more valuable to the industry. It also makes it, um, um, from a customer's perspective, I mean, you're going to end up with, with uh, pilots that are much more competent than they would be if they were out there learning on your dime while you're paying them to move your drill. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's a need, right? And you just got to fill it. Well, and, and let's face it. I mean, everybody's seen all those visits with regards to the shortage of pilots that's coming in, you know, helicopters and fixed wing and the rest of it. It's a very real reality. It's been coming for a long time. It's it's a cyclical thing. We've had this this happen before in the past in the industry. I mean, back in, uh, in the early 70s, um, there was a, a major... Um, increase in helicopter activity in Canada, particularly with the James Bay hydroelectric project being built. So the number of helicopters was increasing rapidly. The demand for pilots and engineers was uh, growing exponentially. And uh, so there was a real shortage. And so the answer then was the provincial government back then uh, decided to institute a training program, which was located at Canada College. Their aviation program was was founded because of a, a shortage in, in uh, helicopter AMEs and, and helicopter pilots. So uh, the province started the program in the first couple of years, uh, the, the guys who went into the program got dual ratings. They, they, they did the mechanics training and they did the, uh, the pilots training and when they came out they could go either way or both because there was a, quite a few guys that became pilot engineers so they could actually fix it and fly it as opposed to one or the other. That went on for, uh, well, it still continues to this day, but it's been, it was split after the second year into a maintenance program and a, and a flight training program. And, and a great many of the, um, of the uh, pilots, senior pilots and, and, and uh, company owners and instructors uh, received a training here in North Bay at the, uh, at the Canada program. So, um, uh, that was that was the first one of the first incantations of a pilot shortage. Uh, Vietnam ended in '73, uh, so a lot of the ex-U.S. Uh, Vietnam pilots came here to Canada and filled the temporary uh, uh, surge that we had. And uh, some of them stayed, some of them went back. But uh, by that time, we picked up our training uh, regiment and we were able to start meeting our requirements for the, our Canadian industry. And then there was, there's been other upticks and downticks as the demand for helicopters goes up. So it was the, the pilots and, and the maintenance people requirements. And sometimes when it goes down, it goes down. So, I mean, it's, it's up and down. I'm just asking not to stop banging because you're going to kill the people listening. I'm sorry? Not to bang too much. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's going to be people listening in the car and just going to hear boom, boom, boom. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you're not the first uh, guy I've talked to that says they're experiencing shortages. They're everywhere at the moment. Do you, mm -hmm. do you feel it? Well, I, I mean, it, it's there. I mean, you talk to any of the operators, you talk to any of the, um, the uh, fixed wing or helicopter operators will tell you that it's, it's difficult to get uh, pilots and engineers. 
Um, you know, most of the entry level uh, operators, uh, guys get in there, they get enough uh, experience to be able to move up the ladder, they're up to the regional, so you've got a, an outfit where they're, they're guys flying a, a bush plane. Well, as soon as you got enough uh, commercial flight time in to, to qualify to get make an application to Jazz or one of those programs, he gets on with them and as a as a first officer and starts uh, flying uh, Dash Eights or whatever. And then and then the same thing happens with Jazz. I mean, they got these guys that are getting to the the regionals, and uh, they get enough time in. The first thing they do is put their name in at one of the main lines you know, Air Canada or, or WestJet or whatever, and off they go. So it's a continual migration up the ladder, and it's it's been, it's created situations where you have people who, um, who now, they're, they're, there's a, a program, I believe, uh, one of the, I'm not sure whether it's Air Transat or one of those that, that have a, a, a system in place where, um, They'll take a guy who uh, has a minimum amount of experience uh, and they'll put him into a simulator and uh, they will train him on... So it'll take somebody to say he's got uh, time flying uh, a twin otter uh, and they'll take him, put him into a flight simulator for an A320 Airbus and, and get him up to the stage where he knows where all the systems work, how they all put together... Um, and then they'll take him out of the uh, simulator and the first time he'll actually set foot in a real A320 airliner is his first revenue flight as a first officer in the actual aircraft. So he's never flown the aircraft except in the simulator and his first revenue flight is the first time he's actually in the aircraft and they're doing that now. So do you think the, the shortage is just a cycle, or is it really bad right now? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's both. I mean, what's happened, what's happened is that there, there's a, a natural rhythm to things. But I, I think the demand for, for uh, aviation uh, professionals has, has never been higher because the demand for, for uh, airlines and for the number of helicopters, I mean, Right now, the helicopter industry, for example, in, in Canada has about uh, 1,800 helicopters, commercial helicopters. Back in uh, the s- late 70s, early 80s, there was maybe, you know, seven or 800. So there's been a significant uh, increase in, in the, in the num- total number of aircraft. It fluctuates a little bit from year to year, but there's always been that steady increase in, in uh so, and with that increase, it, it goes on. The other contributing factor that's really caused, thrown a, a, a wrench in the monkey works, or monkey wrench in the works, whatever. <laughs> One of those. Uh, what's really caused the problem is Transport Canada has changed the regulations with regards to duty hours. And that has created a situation where uh, what you used to be able to do, you can't do duty hour-wise. So, what happens is now you have to have more pilots to uh, be able to do the same amount of flying that you had before you might have to double or triple the number of pilots to be able to fly that same. So let's say you had 100 hours of flying and it was spread over X number of days and um, you had uh, 
two pilots who can do that over that period of days. With the new regulations that are in now, you'd have to have six pilots to do that same amount of flying uh, and still be legal. So that has just tripled the the requirement for pilots. So again, that just acerbates the already um, uh, natural uh, increased demand due to more helicopters or more airplanes or more roads being flown. So that just makes it compounds it that much more. What would you tell? Uh, do you see a lot of uh, younger people being interested in being pilots or being in the? Not like it used to be. I mean, yeah. When I was uh, when I got into the industry, there was there was a lot of people who were really keen on doing it. It was also a different industry than it is now. I mean, uh, when I got into it, we would spend all winter in the hangar and getting aircraft helicopters ready to go out uh, on contract in the spring and summer. And so consequently, you'd, you'd work in the, in the hangar all winter. And uh, in the spring, contract to start, you'd pilot, engineer, helicopters, you'd go off. Might be up to the Arctic, you might be, uh, you might be out west, you might be northern on Quebec, Ontario, wherever. But uh, usually those contracts were months long and there were no rotations. So you would go out and you'd be living in tents or wherever. Uh, for months, weeks at a time, uh, with no rotation, and you'd finish the contract, and you'd come home in the in the fall, and you'd uh, put the helicopter in the hangar, take some time off, and come back in the wintertime, fix it all up, and go back out and do the same thing again. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, that was a tough way to make a, make a, a living. Uh, I mean, you're gone all the time. These days, um, young people aren't interested in, in jobs that were of that nature. So uh, what uh, what's happened is now it's the uh, industry standards like two weeks on, two weeks off. You know, um, most of the jobs are staying in hotels, you're not uh, in, into, you know, camping and that kind of stuff. There's no, not the kind of remote locations that there used to be. So, uh, you know, it's changed dramatically. But even, even having made home life easier by getting these rotations and, and decreasing the, the the length of tours and whatnot. Uh, young people aren't all that interested these days in, in uh, going out and doing that kind of work anymore. They're more interested in, uh, in um, technology-based stuff as opposed to actually going out and, and flying around trying to dart a polar bear and then... Weighing it and doing stuff uh, like that, or, or moving drills from one location to another, or, or fighting forest fires, or stuff like that. It's not, there doesn't seem to be the interest in, in that hands on kind of stuff to the same extent that there was uh, decades ago. So, since that interest has been dying out, don't you think we should make it a little easier for those? individuals that are interested to get into the industry? Well, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why at ATCL we were looking at doing the simulation training, because it would take those motivated individuals, get them to a higher level of uh, employability standard and, and, and get them out there uh, quicker and at a, a higher level than they would otherwise. So uh, it might very well, uh, because I mean, you spend, uh, if you go right now, if you go to, to do training and you're paying out of your pocket for a basic 
a helicopter commercial pilot's license, you're gonna, it's going to cost you upwards of sixty thousand dollars. So you got to you got to pay for that. Now once you you got that, you got a hundred hours. You go out and try to find a job, and the guy says, "Well, we need three hundred hours experience or this or that." But I'll give you a job pushing a broom in the hangar, and if we have a flight, you can pick up an hour here or there, and I'll pay you minimum wage. The so I, I spent sixty thousand dollars to get a hangar a job pushing that broom in the hangar and maybe getting a, an hour here or there to get to the point where I can actually start earning uh, a wage. It, it's a tough sell. So if we can smooth that over by by saying, hey, here's an opportunity that you can uh, enter the workforce uh, at a higher earning level that's commensurate with the number of uh, the amount of money that you spent and the effort that you put in in getting your license. It's going to, I think, attract more people to it that would be otherwise be turned off because they just can't either justify the expense with the short-term lack of return. Um, so I think, uh, you know, a program like uh, Air Crew Training Canada Limited using those flight, the uh, full flight, uh, full motion flight simulators will be such that it would, uh, it would uh, attract more people to the industry than, than we currently do now. What would you suggest for, if you're talking to yourself, uh, you said you got it around in the early 20s, when you were early mm-hmm. 20s, right? 22. Let's say if there was even somebody even younger that's interested in uh, in learning more or getting just a passion for flying helicopters and all mm-hmm. that, what would you give that small, younger person advice to how to get into the industry? Well, I mean, I, what I would suggest to them is to start... Uh, don't don't wait till you start your training. If you have an interest, start uh, start going around where people are operating helicopters. Start to get to know people. Uh, try to find someone to to do some mentoring with you, and try to learn as much as you can about the industry as 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 you can. Because the more that you know about it, the more attractive you're going to potentially be as a as an employee at some point in time. You know, like I said, when I started out, I didn't have any experience at all. I mean, I couldn't have told you one end of a helicopter to the other, and I just, you know, I hung around, I, I spent a lot of time in the hangar, I was mechanically inclined, the base engineer, you know, uh, kept an eye on what I was doing, and used to, uh, when he was doing inspections or whatever, I was allowed to, to, to hang in, and so I started to learn about the aircraft before I even actually got the job, so it was... They, they, I demonstrated the, my uh, uh, enthusiasm, uh, my uh, interest in, in learning, and, uh, and through that exposure, they, they learned that, well, this guy might make a, a decent uh, employee, so when the opportunity presented, they, they made an offer. But if I hadn't made the, the, uh, the effort to, to take my own time and spend uh, hanging around and, and doing whatever, pushing a broom or or if there was a sling job going out and doing the hookups with the helicopter just to get exposure to the thing, I never would have uh, never would have gotten the opportunity to get my apprenticeship and get my license and, and move forward. So, if there's there's young people out there right now that are that are contemplating the uh, the industry, I think uh, what they need to do is is try to uh, spend as much time as they can getting exposed to the to the. Uh, operations uh, and and there are a number of operators around and there's some private individuals that you can you can talk to that uh, I'm certain would be happy to to provide some input 
what are your thoughts on drones? Because uh, not too long ago, the I don't know the association it is, but they changed the rules on operating drones. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very strict. You have to have a course. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what it's put. Yeah, well, Transport Canada, there was no regulations for drones for the longest time. Transport Canada came up with with a, uh, a requirement uh, and some restrictions. So, I mean, where you can fly them is now controlled uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, the last thing you want is a drone flying around in a controlled airspace where you've got airplanes coming and going and the potential interaction between the two is going to not be good. Um, they've uh, taken steps to uh, restrict the size of drones that you can fly for, for personal uh, pleasure. And they've also taken, uh, instituted a licensing, a pilot licensing um, uh, regimen for, for uh, certain size drones and for certain actions, whether you're going to be operating them commercially or what. All stuff that was, I mean, it, it was going to happen. It, uh, yeah, I'm surprised it took as long as it did for it to happen, but it, it's happened, so it's now, it's now moving forward. Um, as far as drones and uh, what uh, what impact they're going to have, I mean, there's lots of people who believe that drones are going to be the end all, the be all, and they're going to replace uh, personal vehicles. They're going to replace uh, delivery trucks. They're going to do everything. Um, I, I kind of, I would suggest that anybody look back to the 40s, 50s, uh, when helicopters were first coming out, uh, when the Bell 47 came out in, in the late 40s and when Igor Sikorsky came out with his, uh, uh, S2 and 3 helicopters, uh, all of the popular news uh, media outlets in those days were all talking about a helicopter in every driveway and commuting from home to downtown without the traffic worries and all the rest of the stuff. Uh, so there's there's a parallel between that new technology back then and this this technology now. So I take some of these claims with a grain of salt. Um, Yes, they're going to have a they're going to have an impact on on helicopter uh, operators, no question about it. Uh, it's a lot of the things that previously you could only do with helicopters, you can do quite effectively with with uh, drones now. Particularly uh, some of the uh, movie uh, uh, shots, mm -hmm. you can get them with uh, depending on the quality of the of the shot that you need. Uh, some of these smaller cameras are doing some pretty good stuff. If you still need a full-size movie camera, then you need a helicopter to do it. But there, there's some pretty good stuff out there right now that's being captured by drones, and that's only going to improve. So I can see that having a significant impact on, on, on the uh, helicopter aviation uh, for movies. Um, surveillance, yeah, there's going to be uh, you know police uh, helicopters and whatnot. Yeah, I can see where there's going to be some erosion there with regards to the uh, availability of drones to do certain things. Uh, when it comes to uh, commuting and the rest of it, I mean, stop and think about it, okay? So you, you, you've driven in downtown Toronto, you see the gridlock that goes on there for all the cars and whatnot. Um, can you imagine uh, that in 3D? Because if you just take the the number of private individual cars and now we turn them into electric uh, uh, flying uh, drones, uh, you still 
you're just taking it off the ground, making it into a 3D uh, situation that, that is going to be super complicated to, and require a significant amount of computing power to keep everybody from bumping into it, one another. So, I, I And the noise. Like, well, and that, that's the other thing. I mean, as it is now, I mean, we had... We were doing the uh, Air Canada shuttle between Pearson and Cherry Streets, but we had a heliport down there in, in the 80s. So if you flew in Air Canada business class, we would uh, you, you were entitled to take the helicopter from Pearson to downtown Schwann. So instead of in those days, it was like 45 minutes to get from, from the airport to downtown. If you flew business class or first class, you, you would uh, get a free helicopter ride to downtown to try and promote their, their business uh, class. Um, so we had set up a, a, a route and we didn't have a, I mean, I think we, there was maybe four flights an hour that were going from Pearson to downtown Toronto and our flight route took us down the Forest 27 to the water, out over the lake and then in off of the lake into Cherry Street. So we weren't going over built-up areas, and we consistently had people complaining <laughs> about helicopter noise. Uh, and it got to the point where you know we would we would uh, we would uh, actually time everything, and we could we could tell you who was going to call when because uh, there was people who just didn't like the idea that there was helicopter traffic in their neighborhood, and every time. They, they would see it or actually one time it was kind of funny because we changed the schedule and this one guy used to call every time the helicopter went over his house okay so it got to the point where he didn't even need the helicopter to, to, to trigger I mean we'd be not flying because of weather he'd call right on schedule <laughs> or if we and when we moved the routes he would still call right on schedule so you, you know that it's not it's not the noise it's just you know, the, the reaction, the guy didn't want to see that happen. And there's a lot of people that, that do not want to see stuff flying over top of them. So, drones, yeah, there's going to be, there's, there's a lot that they can do, but there's a lot they can't do. I don't think that they're going to have the, uh, the devastating effect on the helicopter industry that a lot of people think about. So do you, would you agree that it's a lot of uh, uh, pattern recognition? Like, Whenever a new technology comes, people freak out, then they settle and it gets better for everybody As to a certain extent. Uh, it doesn't really change dramatic, dramatically from one day to the other. Well, I, I think any time that you have a uh, new technology enter the marketplace, it's going to fundamentally uh, have an impact on, on any individual's day-to-day uh, -day life. You're going to get pushback because... You know, everybody is, uh, not everybody opens everything with an open arm. They're, they're looking, you know, people are complacent and happy in their, their point in time in their lives. So you saw bring something in that's going to disrupt that. And uh, I think you're going to find some pushback until they finally realize that, well, you know, maybe that wasn't quite so bad. I mean, you know, you look at what happened with cell phones. I mean, uh, when they first came in, people were like, what the heck do you need that for? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's expensive. It's this, it's that. Now, I mean, how do you how do you live with them? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Some people get anxious if they don't have it by themselves. Well, I, absolutely. I, and I, I think it's kind of hilarious because I remember, I remember uh, mid-'80s, we had... Uh, 
we had radio telephones that we were using when we were up in the territories and whatnot and uh, thought it was just the cat's meow, you know. Um, but, you know, I remember sitting in, in Squamish, B.C., uh, down the docks, we were doing a hydro uh, power line project, and one of the guys up in Fort Smith in this one of the Northwest Territories uh, called us uh, uh, on the radio telephone. We thought, wow, this is great. You know, we can talk to him direct up in the territories, and we're down here in in, um, in uh, southern BC. But now, I mean, where you? Oh, I'm in. Uh, I'm on uh, Mount uh, Kilimanjaro. Oh yeah. Well, I'm sitting here talking to Alex. You know, <laughs> no biggie. No. Where would you like to see some innovation in your industry that would help you day to day? Hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I think a lot about what we're talking about with regards to the differences in the way we train people and the way we do things. Uh, that's that's a, a very primal primal uh, change that that uh, could happen. I, I know Transport Canada is looking at changing. Um, fundamentally changing the way um, training is conducted. I mean, uh, they're looking at going with, instead of a, a training a training company. So right now, let's say, for example, you have a, a helicopter company that wants to do flight training. They have a flight training operating certificate that they apply for and they get, and their curriculum is approved by Transport Canada, and, and they, they start training pilots. So, uh, and if you're an operating company where you, you're not doing training, but you, you have your own pilots, they require retraining each year. So right now you either send them out to somebody to retrain or you do it in more likely you do it in house if you're a smaller operator. So what you have is you have, let's say we've got, uh, 600 operators in, in Canada probably 500 of them all do their own training. Each one meets the standard, but they get to the to meet the standard in a different way. So there's no consistency across the, the board with regards to training. What Transport Canada is looking at doing is trying to bring something that's going to level the playing field so everybody gets the same level of training so we have that consistency across the board so that nothing falls through the cracks. So they're looking at adopting uh, the, the European uh, system whereby instead of individual organizations having doing their own training, uh, they have what's a, uh, called approved training organizations, AMOs or AMTs. Um, and that AMT would be licensed by Transport Canada to provide training, all of the operators would have to send their people to one of these AMTs so that everybody's getting trained to the same standard at the same level in the same way. Gives you that consistency across the board. So I can see uh, that coming. I think that's a good thing. I think... Uh, you're probably going to see when that gets implemented, you're probably going to see uh, some regional AMTs set up across the country. Um, and I think you're going to see that those AMTs are going to utilize the latest technology because now they have a critical mass using their facility as opposed to you have five helicopters, 20 pilots, 
Are you going to buy a simulator to do the training? No, you're not. But if your 20 pilots are going with my 20 pilots and your 20 pilots, and we now have a thousand pilots that are going to an a AMT, uh, improved meaning, uh, true uh, ATM, training, ATO, improved training organization. Uh, for their training, that ATO is going to have the simulators and everybody's going to get the same level of, of increased training that you otherwise wouldn't be able to experience. So that's going to impact on the, the safety record of the industry because now all of a sudden, all these guys are going to be getting uh, training at a level that they otherwise would never have been able to be exposed to. So that's, that's one of the things that I think the, the industry is going to uh, benefit from overall. How would that affect your business? Oh, it'd be positive for us. I mean, we're obviously what we're looking for at, at uh, Aircrew Training Canada Limited is to to be one of those AM ATOs, yeah, ATOs uh, for for our region because um, we believe that uh, that's the way to go. It's 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 going to happen. It's just a question of when. Would you suggest? Uh, entrepreneurs to get into some sort of aviation uh, business. Well, it's been a good, it's, it's been a good industry. I mean, it's one of the one of the biggest problems with the helicopter industry is is most of the people who who are running the companies and the businesses aren't business people; they're industry people. And that's always been an issue because what you have. If you have a guy, maybe a great pilot, great engineer, has some level of managerial expertise, et cetera, et cetera, might have a basic uh, level of understanding of business. So I thought, oh, you know, I don't want to work flying helicopters. I want to, I want to get my own outfit. I think I can do this better than. So they, it's easy enough to put together an investor and get a helicopter and start the company up. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the 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 which should be the main focus, which is the business aspect of it, usually becomes the, the lowest focus. The more focus is on the helicopter, operating the helicopter and, and doing the job, as opposed to how do you make sure that you've got uh, expenses under control, that you have sufficient cash flow to, to keep the doors open and everybody's gonna get paid. So as a result, you find that a lot of these, these operations are underpricing or undervaluing their their uh, uh, their product or their, their their the time that they're they're selling, and as a result, they're not doing very well financially. A lot of them fail. Um, if you look at some of the operators that have been most successful in the helicopter business, it's not because they were great pilots. It's because they were good business people. And, uh, you know, prime example of that is, uh, you know, the largest privately owned helicopter operator in North America started with one helicopter in Sturgeon Falls, Ontario. And now they, they, they run over a hundred and about 120, 130 helicopters. They have a U.S. operation, a Canadian operation, and, um, they're worth uh, a lot of money and they, they consistently do very well. Um, but it was run as a business first, as opposed to uh, an impassioned uh, uh, operation. A lot of people really fall in love with helicopters and think that oh, I'm going to start my own company. 
it should be, I'm, I want to be in business and my business happens to be helicopters as opposed to the other way around. So do you, would you suggest you maybe get a, a partner that is savvy in business, partnering up with? That, that, that would be a very good suggestion. You know, and and so there are some, some um, operators out there who have, who had that mix where you have, um, you know, the, the industry side of it, but then also a business uh, individual who looks after the business side of things and the two of them are on equal footing and, and as a result, you know, you have your yin and your yang and, and it balances out and they can be quite successful. It's when you have that imbalance between the passion and the reality that you, you actually uh, have problems. And um, it must take a lot of humility to accept that you're not so advanced in those skills, right? Well, I mean, I, mean, I don't know anybody who's, who's perfect at everything. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I've got... I got lots of uh, lots of uh, uh, experience in certain levels, and I also know where I don't. So, I mean, uh, I think you have to be mature enough to understand that the the rare individual who has who can do everything themselves. And uh, I think one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, key things is to recognize what your shortcomings are and, and make sure that you've got people and your organization that uh, shore up your shortcomings and, and be smart enough to listen to them when they open their mouths. Uh, what are your thoughts on immigration, helping fix that uh, need? Well, I mean, uh, it worked in the, in the early 70s when, uh, when there was a pilot shortage and we, uh, we had a lot of American ex-military uh, pilots came up here and, and, and uh, uh, some temporary, some still live here today. Uh, that uh, that uh, took uh, took care of that. I mean, one of the problems that you have with immigration, as it relates to aviation, though, is the fact that uh, Western aviation, Western aviation, is a lot more mature than than some uh, uh, in the third world countries. So um, the level or standard of, of, of competency that you're going to get from some people coming in who are licensed pilots may not be um, beneficial in the long run. So uh, I, I, I don't see, I don't see um, immigration from third world countries as being a, a real big benefit to to uh, aviation um, uh, if you're talking countries like Australia New Zealand United States England uh, Germany some parts of uh, of Europe yeah I mean they're all part of, you know they're operating at the same level that we are but if you start talking about bringing in pilots from uh, you know uh, some other third world countries I think uh, that's not going to be the solution uh, and it's going to be a while before some of those countries, including China. I mean, they have a real problem with uh, with their training uh, quality of, of pilots that they're turning out. They're getting better. They're always getting better, but uh, they're they're certainly uh, don't have the volume and the quality that we have here. What do you think that your your biggest responsibility as a as a business owner? And do you employ? Uh, uh, do you have employees? Uh, only when I have to. Yeah. So I just do contract guys when I need them. 
That's right. Uh, yeah, what do you think uh, is the biggest, your biggest responsibility? Do you feel responsibility for something? Well, I feel responsibility for putting out the and providing the best possible uh, product to those who are contracting with me. I mean, when I, I, I've been approached by companies who say, we want to get into the helicopter business, and I say, okay, well, why do you want to get into the helicopter business? And they give me their reasons, and I say, well, quite frankly, that's not a really good reason for getting into the helicopter business. You know, um, I don't think you should really do this. Well, no, we really want to do this. And I said, well, I don't think you should. And they said, well, no, we're insisting we want to do it. Said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. You really, you really sold them on getting into the helicopter business. This is an actual story. We're not going to say who it was. But if you're actually going to do, do, do this, fine. I will, I will do this for you. I will get all the manuals written for you, all your operations procedures. I will find the right helicopter for you. I will buy it for you. I will recruit personnel for you. I will design your hand. I'll get the total package. This is what it's going to cost you. But before I'm going to say one thing to you at this meeting, and that is at some point in time down the road, we're going to do, you're going to come to me and say, listen, we want to get out of this business. And when it happens, I'm going to say to you, do you remember this lunch that we're having here today where you said you wanted to get into it? And I said, you shouldn't get into it. And they chuckled and said, that's never going to happen. I said, no, just remember. And it took 11 years, but after 11 years, they called me up and said, you're right. <laughs> so I then disposed of all of the stuff for them and, and did everything on the way out. So I think uh, you need to be... You need to be honest with, with everybody and you need to, to not tell them what they want to hear. You tell them what they need to hear. And if they then decide to, to proceed and move forward with their plans, then all that you can do at that point is do everything you possibly can to try and make them as successful. But it's, it's, you've, you've given the guidance that you honestly believe is the right guidance for them. Yeah, but it would have been really easy for you to be... Not even say anything. Just take the job, right? Oh, sure. I could have. I could have quite easily done that, but but I don't. I I don't like when somebody comes to me and say, "Hey, this is what I want to do." Okay, well, let's talk about it. You know, and a big. It's not. It may be a great idea. Maybe it may be a needed. It may be exactly what should be happening. But why are you doing it? Because it, the why is as important as the how and the what. What is the motivation? In this particular case, motivation was a member of the family got a pilot's license because they always wanted to be a pilot. Well, that's really not a good reason for starting a company, but they were also quite well off and had the financial wherefrawal to actually do that. So, okay. Now, what happens from that point on is, is okay, now, the direction, and they're business people. So they had that aspect of it. But what happens is is you get the, the, the personalities mixed up into the, okay, well, here's what you should be doing. And, and the people who actually know the industry that they've hired to bring their people along are saying, well, you, you can't really do that. You can only say no for so long to the guy who's, who thinks, who's paying the bills, who thinks he knows more than you do, even though he doesn't. Before, okay, well, 
get rid of him because he doesn't know what he's doing. We know enough. We're going to do this on our own. And then the whole thing goes down the tubes. What's a, what do you think is a why that is worth uh, doing a business? Or why? Yeah, a good why. Well, a good why would be uh, a guy who has uh, done his research, understands the industry, has the the um, technical and and um, uh, business background to understand what all the intricacies and how all parts work together, and is doing it uh, based on uh, a pure business case as opposed to a. Uh, a a passion that they have for having passion for what you do is great, but if that's your prime motivating factor, uh, it's not necessarily going to result in a successful operation. So, you know, and unfortunately in the aviation business, you can, you can have the passion, you can set up a company, you get going and, and you really push, push, push. If you're wrong about something, people can die. And I've I've tended too many funerals over the over the years that uh, don't uh, I don't particularly want to encourage people to get into something that they may be very passionate about but are not ready to uh, to make decisions that that uh, impact people's lives. For investors, uh, we we'll put on a hat as an investor. What would you suggest for somebody who's trying to uh, get into the aviation field and invest? Well, I mean, there's there's opportunities there. There's, there's some very good opportunities there. They have to be very wary. And again, it comes back down to why are you interested in investing in, in, uh, in the aviation industry? Quite often, quite often, uh, you've got people who are very successful in other industries who decide for whatever reason that they want to get in the helicopter business. And... Generally speaking, that's they don't end well. Sometimes they do, but more often than not, they don't. Because uh, having a helicopter, having being well off, having a helicopter that you use for your own personal use, and then having uh, an operating company that has to uh, provide service and, and turn a profit. Uh, there's a real big disconnect between the two, and uh, so quite often the motivation the motivation to get into the helicopter business is because they have that personal passion for flying. I think it'll be a really great time. I, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I know guys who've been very well off who've bought helicopters, learned how to fly, had a great time, decided they were gonna okay. Well, you know, maybe if I start a company up, I can. I can write off part of the helicopter here so I won't be paying the full full bore all the time and all the rest of it. So, <laughs> but... Um, no worries, you can click it off if you want. Well, I don't know how to get the damn thing to do it. Um, so there, there's, there's, there's been a lot of, of, of people that I've known over the years who, who've had the... the uh, who have a business, have money, uh, buy a helicopter, learn how to fly. I uh, decide, well, I'll, uh, I'll get an operating license just so that we can do some charters and it'll offset the cost. I can write off the uh, 
the maintenance, I can have a full-time pilot to wait him off, blah, 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 and do a little bit of this and that. That goes on, and they'll do that for a while. I say, well, you know what, maybe we should get a second machine or the pilot that's flying for them. Then, you know, if we got another helicopter, we could do this. And so they buy a second helicopter and do that. And, and maybe there's a slight, slight downturn or, or whatever, and all of a sudden they got to look at it and go, wow, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't working anymore. Or they've had the thing for 10 years, and they think, oh, you know, I'm past that now, I'm going to move on. And they just liquidate and move on and do different things. So how do, how do people, how do you attract the investors? I mean, usually it's because they have a, an interest in, in, in the, the industry that, uh, and then once they've they, they had some exposure, they either excel or they, eh, they get a... Do you fly yourself? No. No? I have, I have flown in the past, but not, uh, I don't, I don't fly. No. Um, you're kind of a one-man enemy, right? Yep. So, what do you think would be the best way, because right now social media and marketing and all that stuff is just taking over a lot of companies. How do you... Uh, uh, marketing, online marketing, help a, a guy like you, a business like you. Well, I think it's it's important. You have to have a, an element to it. I mean, uh, uh, there's no question that uh, that exposure uh, gets you uh, business. I mean, uh, LinkedIn. I mean, the articles that I wrote on LinkedIn, uh, you could you could see uh, a marked uh, increase in activity when you put something like that out. So that's the kind of thing that you do. I mean, what you're doing here today, you know, that's exposure. That's the type of thing that, uh, that you need. I think everybody needs to be doing it on an ongoing basis. So that's, that's why I'm here. It's not because, uh, uh, you know, I want to hear myself talk, but, uh, but I think by having a conversation, you get a little bit better understanding of what the company and the individuals are so that uh, you can hopefully build your business somewhat. We're going on time. Yeah, we're okay. Really? Yeah, like one hour, one hour ten. See, totally you flies away, right? Oh, yeah. No, it always <laughs> does. It always does. Is there anything uh, you want to talk about? I don't know. I mean, do you, is there anything that you want some anecdotes or you want, I mean, you tell me what you, what you want to, I can... I can give you some stories that'll, that'll be interesting or humorous or I can yeah, give you give whatever. Yeah, give me a good story. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to think about the ones I can tell that are um, not too grizzly. Uh, oh, okay, here's one for you. So, uh, when I first started uh, working at Dominion Pegasus, okay, this was, I think it was 79, so I'd been there a few years. Our hangar was located in the south end of the city over on Gonkin Road. And uh, we were at the hangar this one Saturday noonish, and we got a phone call from a guy who said, uh, uh, you guys have a helicopter available? And we said, yeah, yeah, we do. And he said, uh, Okay, well, he said, I want you to, could you deliver a pizza for me? And we said, deliver a pizza. He said, yeah. And I said, okay, where do you want to deliver it to? And he said, uh, this address over uh, on Loach's Road, which was maybe 
I don't know, uh, two miles from where the base was. I said, well, I said, I have it on pretty good authority that if you just phone the pizza place, they'll just deliver the pizza to you. He says, no, no. He says, it, it's, it, I'm doing it because it's, it's a, 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 going to be a, a gag. I was like, oh, okay. But he said, listen, he said, can I come over to the hangar and I'll, and I'll explain to you what I want to do. I said, okay, come on over. So we figured, okay, either this guy is, is drunk or, you know, there's, there's something. <laughs> anyway, he shows up, very respectable individual, pulls up. And he, uh, he uh, comes in, he says, listen, he says, here's the whole story. He says, Jim Jerome, who at the time was the member of parliament for Sudbury and was the speaker of the house for, for the House of Commons, uh, he says, he lives next door to me and he's a good, good friend of mine. And we have, we have these jokes that we play back, practical jokes we play back and forth. He said, so I was in Ottawa last week and Jim said he was going to take me out for for lunch. So he picked me up in a limousine and we went through the drive through it at McDonald's. And he said, that was his, his gag on me. So he said, cause I was expecting to go someplace, you know, be seen. So he says, I'm having this formal dinner at my house tonight. And he says, I want to pull a joke on Jim. And he says, what I'd like to do is I'd like you guys to to have come in with the helicopter, land in my front yard, and deliver this pizza to Jim. Um, I said, "Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I appreciate. I like the humor, so I said, okay. Let's uh, let's go over and take a look at your house." So we went over. Two minute drive. We get over there. We're looking around. He's on this cul-de-sac on on Nepawan Lake. And we're looking. And we're saying, oh, there's no way that you know, with all the cars, there's no way that we'll ever be able to do this safely or legally and he's going uh, I said, but I, said, I have an idea for you he said what's that I said, what we can do is I'll take the door off the uh, helicopter we can have a pizza that we'll put into a little sling and I'll lower it down on a rope to the front yard we can't land but we can we can hover there and I says what you do is have a couple of guys that grab it and deliver it oh that's perfect Perfect. So I'll get him dressed up in chef's hats and blah, blah, blah. I'll have a banner made up. Whatever. So he's okay. So it was all set. So at the appointed hour, we take off from the base with the pizza. We come across the lake to his house and the lights are on. There's all these people in gowns and, and suits and on the deck and this and that. And we're coming across and you can see the people looking, oh, I don't look at the helicopter. And then we're getting closer and closer and closer. And people start to look what's going on. Then we come over top of the roof to the front yard. And people are starting, what? And they're all coming out into the yard and this and that. And everybody's looking. And all of a sudden, this pizza starts coming out of the helicopter. <laughs> the front yard. These two guys come running out. They get the pizza. And we peel off and go back. So we get back to the base. We weren't back at the base two minutes and the phone's ringing off the hook and I figured, oh boy, we're busted. Somebody's complained we're going to have some kind of a problem here. It's the guys. Oh, what a great everybody had a great time. It was wonderful. Oh, that was the best joke. Everybody like, you got to come over and have a good We're, we're dressed in there. Grubby's it out. No, no, you have to. Everybody wants to meet you guys. So we went over and spent the night Convince them and drinking and uh, shooting the breeze with all these guys in their three-piece suits and we're sitting around in jeans and a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was one of the stranger uh, 
request that I had deliver a pizza in, in town. We've done uh, a lot of stuff with uh, with game. Um, we've done uh, Bearland Grizzly studies where we covered uh, uh, forty thousand square miles of uh, tundra looking for Bearland Grizzlies in the, in the Eastern Arctic uh, in around uh, Baker Lake, uh, where you you'd find one, you'd dart it, and and then uh, we'd. Uh, Weigh it, measure the skull, pull a premolar tooth, take blood samples, and and, and all of that for uh, for the studies, um, polar bear studies, caribou studies, uh, a lot of different things like that. Uh, yeah, my sister is a biologist and chaplain, and she all the time on helicopters, oh, yeah. studies, yeah. and moose yeah, surveys and all that stuff. Yeah, and then her husband is a fire ranger. Oh yeah, so he goes. Okay, um, well, he didn't have lots of exposure yeah. to helicopters for sure. Yeah. Like, I was thinking it'd be pretty cool doing a, a video of his journey of what these guys go through, right? Because they get dropped off in the middle of nowhere and... Yeah, there's, uh, there's, um, no, I mean, it could be the middle of nowhere or it could be the middle of somewhere. I mean, I had uh, Hell Attack dropped off guys uh, to a fire within three miles of my house, uh, this this summer it was a lightning strike and uh, they put a crew in there. They spent two three days in uh, cleaning it out. I mean you could you know, but they they set up the tents and they did the whole thing. So <laughs> if you were going to do a video, that that would be the perfect time because you have access. To yeah. it, you know what I mean. So there are situations where you could actually get the the video footage that you're looking for yeah. without having to uh, be in a super remote location. Um. Yeah. But we've, uh, yeah, we've done a lot. We, I, the biggest fire that I was ever on in 1980, uh, Thunder Bay 46, which was just north of uh, Thunder Bay, started in April. It was an M&R truck that went off the road uh, in the bush and caught fire, started the fire. It burned from April until we were the last helicopter released in September. At the height, they had 52 fire camps around the, the perimeter of this fire. It burned 365,000 hectares. And uh, we had about, at the peak, about 30 helicopters fighting that one fire. And uh, we were, like I said, we were the last, last uh, helicopter released in September, head back down to Thunder Bay. That was a long summer. I bet I remember... I think two summers ago, uh, here in North Bay, uh, when the sun started to set, you could you know, a small cloud coming oh, yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah well, I mean, uh, there's there's uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of situations where there have been some pretty significant fires uh, in around northeastern Ontario. I mean, we have this last, not this year, but a year ago. Uh, was uh, when we had the fires down in the French River and everywhere else. That's probably the biggest fire season we've had in northeastern Ontario in 25 years. Um, before that, we, we had some big fires in Tamagami. We had some big burns up there in the early 80s. But uh, we haven't had uh, a whole lot in the last 25 years or so. It's mostly been out west. So. But it's it's cyclical. I mean, it, it happens. I mean, you know, uh, weather patterns change. Vegetation changes. You know, we had the gypsy moth come through in the, in the late 80s, early 90s and created a lot of deadfalls. So you had some, some stuff where fuel values went up. So you get fires that burn hotter and bigger and 
do their thing. So. Well, Dan, uh, what was the name of your uh, your company business? Uh, Trend Tech Canada. Trend Tech Canada. We'll, we'll give you a plug and. Uh, <laughs> well, great. Thank yeah, you very much. Appreciate it. having you. Thanks oh, for coming. My pleasure. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Please share and subscribe to the podcast if it brought you any value.